Mac Power Users, Episode 420, Presentation Workflows. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal David Sparks. Hello, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. You know, we are we are getting ready to jet off to Chicago for the annual American Bar Association Tech Show. That's... Um, Actually, this week, as the show releases, it's hard to believe. And that means that we're both going to have to give some presentations. We're actually giving one together this year. I don't think we – did we give one together last year? Maybe we did. I think they try to keep us apart whenever possible. That's that's always a good advice. And so we have the topic of presentations ripe on our mind. Yeah, I've been hard at work on my presentations. And, and my workflows have changed a bit over the years. And it's been really a, a long time, if ever, since we've given a show – just to how you and I make presentations. Like we had Les Posen on back in show 111 who had some great workflows for making presentations. But I thought um, uh, I would just share uh, the madness I go through. I, I was As I was looking at the outline, I realized people are going to think I'm insane, but they probably already think that. So I'm I'm okay with it. Well, you know, we you, you did write a book on presentations. I did. I did. So you, you have a lot to say about the subject, what is good. But while while we're talking about Chicago, we we are getting very close to running out of tickets. In fact, by the time you hear this, we might be out. I don't know. But um, I know we're getting close. We will put the link one final time um, in the show notes to the uh, Chicago meetup that we're having. That is going to be on Wednesday. I believe it's the 7th of March. Um, we are going back to Bar Louis, which was a great venue for us. The folks there were, thank you, Mandy, was very kind. Um, and once again, the fine folks over at MacPaw, the makers of SetApp, which is the uh, subscription service for uh, apps. They have a ton of great apps on there, is sponsoring our event. So uh, they're helping us cover the room costs and helping us cover the food. Now, of course, it's going to be uh, buy, buy your own drinks there. But I, I am, you know, I, we talked about doing this meetup a couple of I guess it's been a month or so ago. And I said, David, you know, we just did this meetup a year ago. It's it's only been a year. People don't really want to see us again. No, nobody's going to show up. People drove to Chicago from all over to, to come hang out with a bunch of geeks. Nobody wants to do that again. And yet again, as appears to be a recurring theme on this show, I am wrong. Yeah. And if not for us, you should come to see Rose Orchard. She's flying in from Europe. You, you, that that really is the highlight of the show. That that's the main reason that you should come. <laughs> <Gotta> meet Rose. <laughs> because can I tell you, we have gotten more feedback in the Mac Power Users Facebook group about Rose's workflow show than I think we have any other guest on Mac Power Users. Yeah, we it certainly have. Well, Rose is great, and we will have her back. And not only will we have her back, she will be in Chicago. So don't don't come see us. Come see Rose. Uh, anyway, um, so we've got presentation workflows. And this really came to mind because I've been hard at work on making these presentations for next week. And uh, I thought we would just kind of walk through the process. And and for me, it all starts with thinking about a presentation. You know, I'm from California. You know, I can be a little hippie about this stuff. But uh, I, I think a good presentation really starts really early. If you start, you know, if you just open your presentation app of choice and start making slides a few days before you're going to give your presentation. I, I feel like you're already in a lot of trouble. Uh, to make a truly good presentation, uh, you need to start early. I mean, for me, like this, these presentations I'm giving in Chicago, uh, OmniFocus popped up a month before the presentation day and said, hey, buddy, get, get working on this stuff. Um, how early do you start working on presentations before you give them? 
Well, in a perfect world, I, I like to start quite some time out like you do, because I find that, like many things, the, the idea morphs and changes over time. And my first idea is rarely my best one. Um, often I'll start making the presentation and then realize as I'm I'm quite a bit into it that there's a much better way of doing things. And you realize that if you had started something the night before or sometimes even the week before, you're going to get stuck with that first idea because you just simply have run out of time and you don't have time to, to get to those better ideas that are lurking underneath if you've just given something the right time to cook. Yeah, I mean, ins- inspiration can't be forced. You can't sit here and say, okay, I got two days. I need to come up with a brilliant idea right now. At least the way my brain works, that never happens. And and I also will find that um, maybe writers have this the same issue that the, the time has to be right. I, I can, you know, sit down at a computer and say, I have to come up with a presentation. I have to come up with some PowerPoint slides. Or, gosh, did I just say PowerPoint? Ugh, I'm so sorry. Um, you know what I meant. Uh, I have to come up Katie with some. Katie just outed herself, everybody. I, no, I didn't out down. myself. I said PowerPoint, like, <laughs> you know. it. I don't know what you said, Katie. I'm going to pretend it never happened. I, I, I meant it more, you know, like Xerox and Xerox and Kleenex and Kleenex, not not like, you know, the actual software program. But, no, we're going to cut this out. Don't worry. We'll okay. just cut it out. Yeah, I'm sure we're we will. Really, we're not really going to cut it out. No. Um, but I find that I can sit at a computer and and stare at a blank slide deck for hours and hours and hours and and ultimately get nothing done or very little done or certainly nothing good done. And then all of a sudden it hits. And and then I can be super productive in a very short span of time. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me tell you the way I do it. It's um, and this is the first step to a good presentation, but you can really apply this to writing or anything else. We did that show cooking ideas forever ago. I'll link it once again. Uh, but the, um, uh, the idea of just letting the idea germinate in your head and the easiest way for me to start a presentation is I don't give any thought to, you know, what's my key analogy or what's my clever picture I'm going to put up or any of that stuff. All I do is about a month before when OmniFocus, you know, tells me to, I open up MindNote, which is a great little app that works on Mac, iPhone, and iPad. It's a mind mapper, but it's it's very simple. That's what I love about that app so much is it's just easy to get into. You don't there's no learning curve. You just open it up, and there's a center note, and I'll write down the um, the title of the presentation, and maybe two or three branches off of that of things that I I know I definitely want to cover in that presentation. So it really starts that simple, and it takes five minutes to open that up and just take those steps. And I if you do that, take those five minutes, and then you close it. I mean, if you've got, if you're inspired and you've got some more ideas for the presentation, go for it. I'm not telling you to stop, but if you don't have anything, if you don't have any gas in the tank, just write down the name of the presentation and two or three things that you know you want to cover and then close it and then come back in a day or two and open it again. And magically your brain will have some ideas. <laughs> it, it works every time. I, you know, it's the whole subconscious mind thing. I'm sure there's like books about it and stuff, but I, for me, it works every time I just let. I just kind of let it cook in the background and I come back to it. And then I do that every two or three days. I just keep coming back. And without any real serious effort, I can build up a pretty good outline of a presentation in that process. And along the way, I can do a lot of other things. Like as I start, maybe I'm a week into it and suddenly it occurs to me that I really need a picture, you know, of a duck 
you know, that I'm going to use somewhere in this presentation. I've got a great idea, this vision of a picture of a duck and how it's going to send everything home for everybody watching it. And you can write down the word duck in my note and close it. And then you come back the next day, you're like, oh, it's not a duck. It's actually a 747. And so whatever, you know, you just go through and take your time and and let that thing germinate. And it's the best way, uh, I think, to really prepare about for a presentation. And it doesn't involve creating any slides. <laughs> I, I just, um, do you know that cooking ideas show was, I think, I think it was, I'm going to put a link in the show. I think it was show 85. How, how long ago does that, but it's still, it's, it's still good advice. Well, now, do you prefer, sometimes you get a topic assigned to you by the person that you're giving a presentation for, or sometimes you're asked to come up with a topic. And then sometimes you have a lot of leeway in that topic. And sometimes the topic is very narrow. Um, is your process any different or do you have a preference? No, it's, it's really not any different. If I, if someone says, you know, talk about whatever you want, uh, I usually try to have a pretty good idea what I'm going to talk about before I start the mind note. Like if someone says you can talk about cooking ideas or you can talk about paperless or you talk about email or whatever, you know, a lot of my talks are about technology stuff. If it's not trying to convince a jury or something, um, I, that's the starting point in my note for me, the actual general topic I usually know before I start, you know, in my note. But, um, the idea for me is once you get it in my note, it's just the, the rawest, the barest skeleton and you just put meat on the bones, you know, over a little period of time. Yeah. You obviously also have to have the time. Sometimes you don't, sometimes they want you to talk very, very quickly. I was at, um, that automation conference and, um, and Andy Anatko got the weather. There was a problem. He couldn't make it. And out of the blue, they said, hey, Brett Terpstra, can you give a talk? You know, he had like three hours, you know, so he couldn't do the whole, you know, crazy sparks mind node method. But he came up with the talk and was able to go. But if you have the time, um, I think this and it may take a little bit more time over the course of things. But the payoff for this method is once you open up your your presentation software, like for me, Keynote or KD PowerPoint, um, you can just start building the slides. I mean, it just, it really comes to you so quickly at that point. I don't use PowerPoint, but I, I have had cases where, you know, I, and I want to talk about, we'll talk about later in the show, collaborating with other people who use different tools. So I think it's something we can talk about later, but Let's let's get into talking about actually um, making the slides. And when you're giving a presentation, do you even need slides? Because I think a lot of people use their slides as a crutch. I mean, it, it's helpful when you get up to give a presentation to have something behind you. But the last thing any of us want, you know, we've, we've heard the phrase death by PowerPoint, um, because usually it is PowerPoint. But don't you hate it when someone gives a presentation, then maybe hands you their presentation, or maybe they've sent you the presentation in advance, and then proceed to stand there often with their back to you and read you their presentation point by point by point. I mean, to me, it's like, why even give a presentation? Why, why even have slides? Why do that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a common problem. Yeah. I think at some point as you're, if you're using MindNode or if you're uh, don't like MindNode or uh, um, mind mapping, Omni Outliner is another good one. Just any, if you're, after you get done kind of building structure out, you're going to know when it's time to move over to your slides. So, uh, you just feel it, you know, you're like, okay, this isn't a spot now I can start doing that. But I, I think that is a great question. As you're doing the outline, be asking yourself if you want slides or not. I've given plenty of talks over the years, even on technology subjects where I don't have slides. Sometimes it's by choice. Sometimes it's, uh, by r the fact that the bulb just blew out in a projector or whatever. And, 
Uh, I think if you go through this process to to properly prepare a presentation, you can probably roll either way. But um, I, I in general, I'm in favor of having slides. Uh, uh, I think I have a pretty healthy attitude towards them. I mean, one of the, the themes I hope we get out of this show is that the most important thing a slide can do is reinforce the words you're saying. You know, like Katie was saying, you don't turn around and read the slides. The slides actually support you. You don't support the slides. So if you come up with the types of slides that that we're going to kind of recommend you build through this through this uh, show, um, you could lose them and still give the presentation. It would still work. And uh, so in general, I'm in favor of them uh, if the room supports the technology and it doesn't become a big deal. How many times have you given, I mean, do you often give presentations without slides? Like, I know you do a lot of stuff with your Mac user group. Well, um, I, I will say that my preference is not to give presentations without slides. My my preference is to have something, but I will very often give a de facto presentation on something with, without slides. So if, I, if there's a plan, then I often will give slides. I, I often will prepare slides, but I'll, we'll talk about what we put on those slides otherwise. I don't need slides if I've prepared the presentation properly because what is on the slides are often just um, supplemental and thought material and not really the beef of my presentation. Yeah, and there's so many things you can do with slides. Uh, if you're talking about technology subjects, they're very helpful because you can put screenshots and videos and things behind you to, to actually demonstrate what you're trying to uh, talk about. But there's also things, there's tricks you can use as a speaker with slides. Uh, one of my favorite things to do with slides is, is kind of rapid fire slides. And so what you do is you put like... Like I'll, sometimes I'll go to a presentation when I'm sharing, like at, at tech show where we're going next week, a lot of times there's co-presenters and the, the other presenter will have like 10 slides and I'll have like 150 and they'll be, they don't even understand what happens, you know? But uh, for me, it's kind of like a, a shtick, you know, as I'm giving this, the presentation, uh, I'll make a statement like at some point, like, Oh, I have a very particular set of skills. And as I say that I click and there's a picture of um, Liam Neeson, you know, and and then I click again and a bunch of people in the room giggle that are paying attention and the rest of them uh, hear the giggling. They look up and the joke's already over. You know, I mean, the trick is you you don't you never acknowledge it as a speaker. You just keep going. And then all of a sudden they are less likely to be checking Twitter because they don't want to miss the next joke. So you can use slides. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you can do with slides to help make the presentation better. And, and I, so I'm just generally in favor of them. But the question is, um, where do you build the slides? Because it used to be there was only one place, you know, PowerPoint, which is what led to the death by PowerPoint statement. Uh, but now there's a whole bunch of places. Um, Let's start with PowerPoint, though. Have you worked in PowerPoint lately? Yeah, the new the new PowerPoint is is actually quite good, and um, I, I think it is a strong competitor to Keynote. My my preference is still Keynote, which we'll talk about later. But the the new PowerPoint is is cleaned up. It has better themes. Um, it's it's easier to use. Uh, I, I think that is in large part thanks to a lot of the work that Apple did with Keynote. But it's it's not a bad program. No, no, not. A, I don't think it's ever been a bad program, but it's, uh, you know, it looked very corporate for a long time. And I feel like they've kind of loosened it up a little bit. Um, the animations and the slide transition stuff has gotten way better in the last few years. I, I had to give a, a presentation in PowerPoint last year and I thought it was kind of fun to say, OK, well, let's just see how the other side lives. 
and it's it's a lot better than it used to be. So I don't think you should feel bad about using PowerPoint. Um, the uh, the thing about PowerPoint, though, that I do think hurts a lot of people is simply that those themes in PowerPoint are so well known. I mean, most people use PowerPoint. They use the built-in themes. They go to work, and they're forced to sit through PowerPoint presentations every day at work, and they see the same themes and the same fonts and basically the same layout tools. So uh, there's kind of a, I guess, though, I don't know how to put it. It's like it's like they're all in the same family, and you recognize that when you see it. Like, like, do you remember when the internet was kind of a thing where people started making their own websites and you could go to someone's website and you could say, oh, that one was made with Yahoo. Mm-hmm. Geocities, yeah. Yeah, you could tell where the website came from just by looking at it. Well, I feel like PowerPoint decks usually kind of have a particular look to them. And and that that's not really fair to Microsoft, but it's true. So uh, I, that's why I'm not generally in favor of using PowerPoint, even though it's a it's a better than it's it's a good app now but i i generally you know lean towards keynote as a result although i i will tell you that i think with keynote becoming more popular you are starting to see a lot of the same keynote slide decks and you know the same you know gray slate themes and a lot of those types of things happening again do you have um speci- do you have specific themes that you use or specific theme packs that you've added on to keynote to help expand that at all yeah, I mean, Apple uses that that gray gradient theme in all their presentations. They've done it, you know, go, going back to Steve Jobs. Right, and I think that particularly people are used to seeing that one because the, the, the Apple keynotes have become so popular. People see Apple snippets of Apple keynotes on the news and on YouTube and all those types of things now. Yeah, so I feel like that's a really bad idea. I, I feel like you should treat that theme as toxic. Just don't use it. I mean, that's Apple's theme. Um uh, the themes in Apple uh, Keynote are pretty good. Uh, there's a couple that, that I like right now that are built in. And then I've also bought some over the years. And there's a lot of really good, if you just Google Keynote themes on in Safari or Chrome or wherever you, or you Google. search. Google. See, you just use Google as a. Yeah, there you go. Well, whatever. There you go. Uh, so if you go and search out Keynote themes, you're going to find that there's actually quite a few good ones on the market. Um, I have a, a blue gradient one with orange uh, text that I bought a few years ago that I'm going to use this year at, Key- at a ABA Tech Show. Uh, currently, I am often using a version of the, uh, I think it's the, uh, what is it, the hardcover? There's a hardcover one, and then there's an artisan one. There's a couple that are in Apple Keynote that come as, as drafts that you can get that I don't see very often, but quite often I will change the typography in them. Uh, if it's Max Sparky stuff, often I use Futura. It's kind of the font of Max Sparky or whatever. So I use that, but you know, you can go through and change the fonts. But the, my point, I guess I'm making is most people aren't used to seeing those themes. I remember when I used to give a lot of jury trials, jurors would always ask me at the end for a copy of my PowerPoint, you know, in quotes. And that was, I think, it wasn't that my slides were amazing, but maybe they were. But the, uh, I think it was just that it was something they'd never seen before in terms of the themes and the way the fonts were rendering. And that was what, what had their interest. So, you know, I love Text Expander. Text Expander is one of the must have utilities on my Mac. 
And as I was explaining to a group of lawyers recently, Text Expander not only works on your Mac, it works on iOS and Windows PCs now as well. Text Expander is a tool that will allow you to type just a few snippets of text and it will expand into much more. Maybe a few sentences, maybe a few common phrases that you use, maybe an entire letter. The possibilities with Text Expander are absolutely endless. You can use snippets of text for short things like email addresses, websites, the date, things you type regularly, like maybe directions, references, requests, proposals, answers to common questions, or you can use it to fill in an entire letter. In fact, if you head over to Text Expander's blog, they've got a series right now on how you can use Text Expander help you in a job hunt. I tell you, when I used to work for the big firm, I was in charge of hiring. And I would hate it when I would get the same form letter from people that it was clear that they were just sending out blindly to everybody. And those resumes went to the very bottom of the pile. And sometimes I didn't even look further. You can use a tool like Text Expander to help you personalize your letters. So you could, for example, build the framework of the language in a, in a snippet and then place fill-in fields everywhere that you need to tailor the snippet to fit your specific audience. That way, you can let Text Expander do all the work for you, but make sure that everyone gets a customized letter for their needs. There are so many ways that Text Expander can help you. The possibilities are absolutely endless. So you can learn more by heading over to textexpander.com slash podcast. That will give you a link over to the Text Expander site, tell you all about the various uses of Text Expander, and link you over to their blog where you can read articles about how other people are using Text Expander and get some great ideas for yourself. So thanks again to Text Expander for their kind support of Mac Power users. And don't forget to head over to textexpander.com slash podcast to get your exclusive discount code. One of the things I was thinking about is, though, that Keynote and PowerPoint aren't the only game in town. There's actually quite a few good presentation uh, software packages out there these days. Um, one of them is Google Slides. I've seen this being used more and more, particularly for collaboration. I'm in a, a couple of groups where um, uh, we have to present as a group. We have to present a, a presentation. We have to give a presentation as a group. And that's how people want to collaborate, particularly when we have student members of our group. I think we're starting to see Google Docs being accepted more and more by students. They're they're growing up without a an, a true office suite. They're using Google as their office suite, and um, the really driven a lot by the students. They're saying, "I'll start a slide deck for us," and they're starting it in in Google Docs. And that's where we're seeing Google Slides come in as, as presentations. I, I haven't been thrilled with the ones that I've seen where people are just importing PowerPoints into Google Slides. I don't think it does as good of a job with, with that conversion. But it's, it's certainly a very viable solution, particularly if you're starting there. Yeah. I Okay. So I, I kind of think it's garbage. I, I've worked with it. I, I did one last year in it for somebody. And then my kids use it all the time in school. So they're always asking me for help with their slides. Um, like if you just want a deck where you're going to show a bunch of pictures, it's fine. But if you really want like the kinds of nuance that you can bring to a keynote presentation just aren't there. I mean, it, it's worse than the battle days of PowerPoint, in my opinion. No, if you're just putting a slide with pictures and bullets, it's fine. But it's not and you can make it pretty. It, But it's not you're not going to be able to do all the fancy transitions and and the Max Sparky animations you know the max sparky keynotes yeah so I, I i'm not a big fan of it but katie nailed it i mean if you want to collaborate and you need a bunch of people to work in it at the same time you're you're going to be in pretty good shape with that uh but you can collaborate with powerpoint and to a lesser extent keynote as well i mean there there's ways to to do that with these apps and 
uh, I don't know. I'm just not a fan of Google Slides. I guess someone can convince me differently, but I, I've not seen a very good presentation off of Google Slides yet. Uh, there's some third-party stuff out there, too. Uh, one of them that is got super popular is Prezi, P-R-E-Z-I. And the thing that strikes me about Prezi, so the idea of it is it's like a big canvas where the images from all your slides are just kind of splattered all over this canvas. And then there's a camera that, that moves into a particular slide. And then when you click it, it, it zooms out, spins and does whatever and lands on the next section of the canvas showing the next section of the slide. It's a really cool effect when you see it. And the first time, few times I saw it, I really liked it. But then it, it, it's like, um, uh, it just kind of became unbearable to me after a while because it's like, it, it's like once you see the trick a few times, it's cool. But then you just keep seeing it over and over again and it's not so cool anymore, in my opinion. So... Uh, if you're with a group of people that have never seen a Prezi presentation, they're going to be super impressed. Uh, if you're with a group of people that have seen 15 of them, it's just going to become tedious because all those animations take time in between slides and gives your audience a chance to uh, lose your attention. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people using the Prezi uh, presentations. I've never built one myself, though. They're easy. They're easy. Yeah, I did it on the web, even. I think it's largely web-based. But the uh, yeah, it's cool. But it's just, I don't know. I, just, I got tired of it. But, you know, somebody out there listening is going to disagree with me, and that's okay. But the uh, I, I feel like doing a few Prezi's is fine. But if you're with, like, like I said, be sensitive to your audience. Another one that a lot of people use is Haiku Deck, which is great. Uh, one of the nice features of Haiku, I think, is I, I made one on that um, when I was writing the presentations book. I made a few on that. I thought their mobile editing was really powerful. So, like, if you want to work on iPad and iPhone, Haiku Deck is great. Uh, it's simple. It doesn't have as many fancy features as Keynote and PowerPoint, but um, it's a solid presentation tool. And in a lot of ways, it, you know, it doesn't stand out you know, the way Prezi does. And it looks better than Google Slides, in my opinion. So so that's, a, I think, a real solid option to people. Anything on the Haiku Deck? Have you ever used that one? Nope, I haven't used that one. Another one is a newer one called Slides, which is a web-based tool. Uh, I was checking it out. I was actually researching for this show. This one didn't make it into my book. And they looked nice enough. I didn't have time to sign up for an account and prepare slides. But it, that's one worth checking out if if the above options we've talked about are not floating your boat. But I think we both still use Keynote as our go-to. I mean, we, we've we we've dabbled with some of these, these other projects, but Keynote is still the one. Now, are you using... I almost exclusively use Keynote on the Mac. I, Keynote has gotten better and better as a as a mobile platform. Or how much are you using it on iOS for slide creation and for slide presentation? I'm uh, I'm kind of ambidextrous with uh, slide creation. I I can do almost everything on iOS that I can on the Mac. And in fact, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but that planning stuff I was talking about, MindNote and that stuff, that's a great uh, solution for iOS, you know, but for working on your phone or your iPad, taking it out, looking at it, fiddling with it, then closing it and moving on. Uh, I, I would argue that for most people, uh, creating these presentations on the Mac is still easier than it is on iOS. Uh, Keynote has got some real interesting user interface stuff going on on the iPad. Like it, it's almost like playing the piano where you 
put a finger down and you put a second finger down and then you twist it to spin it. There's uh, this stuff isn't absolutely discoverable. You kind of have to go through and figure out the various moves you can make. Uh, another problem with creating slides on keynote is you've got, you've got to get access to like the images, uh, uh, putting an image on the Mac is real simple. Usually you've got it on your desktop or your downloads folder or somewhere, or even right in Safari right next to the Mac and you just drag it in. Uh, um, it works like that with Keynote, uh, with uh, the new changes with iOS 11, you can get that to an extent, but often it's not a question of dragging, but you've got to save an image to your photos gallery and you import it into the slide. And there's nothing wrong with that. I do it all the time. Um, I was on a way to a presentation where I had, you know, kind of a hallelujah moment or idea. Uh, I guess it would be eureka moment where I thought of exactly what I needed. So I had to get an image and then I did some changes to the image in Pixelmator on iPad, saved it into the photo gallery uh, or the, yeah, the photo, what they call the photos library. And then I went into Keynote and imported it from the photos library. So I had to kind of jump around from a few different apps that probably would have been easier on a Mac, but like I said, if you're willing, if you want to do it on iPad or maybe, you know, iPad is all you have. And we do have listeners that don't own Macs, believe it or not. Uh, you can, you can go ahead and do it that way, uh, but you've just got to kind of spend a little time learning the interface. Uh, another issue with working on iPad is fonts. I mean, you don't think about this, but you know, fonts are key to your presentation. Often you use installed fonts. Like I use a, some of those, uh, comic book fonts. They have that, you know, comicbookfonts.com. They have a sale every year on, on January 1. So I've been, for 10 years, I've been buying a new font every year from these guys. And so I, they, they look different. They fit in nicely in presentations, but they're not installed by default on your your iPad. So you got to use an app to install them. Yeah, I I have not used Keynote that much on, on iOS. I found it pretty restrictive in previous versions. And I know that it's gotten a lot better with drag and drop support and as Keynote has evolved. But it just seems to me it's so much easier for me to create, you know, presentations on the Mac because I'm constantly going back and forth between not just one or two windows, but, you know, sometimes three and four windows going back and forth between my notes, back and forth between images, you know, something on a website, whatever I'm doing. So I've I've tended to keep my creation of keynotes uh, strictly on the Mac, but it's nice to know that in a pinch you can you can do that on iOS. I'm pretty much storing my keynotes files almost exclusively in iCloud Drive though. And I, I did have a, a fun moment this afternoon when I had to share a presentation with someone that I'm collaborating with. I tried to share it using the iCloud collaboration, but I found out they don't use iCloud Drive. And happily, because I keep all those documents in cloud storage and because I keep it in iCloud Drive, it was really easy using the files app using just my iPhone with a few taps to take that and transfer it over to a Dropbox link or to send it off to somebody in an email, um, keeping those files stored up in iCloud, you know, where Keynote kind of wants you to keep them now made things really super easy. Yeah. And with the way Apple's has kind of abandoned the, the application as file service model, uh, I, uh, I keep my presentations for years. I kept them all in a Keynote folder in iCloud, and then I would have subfolders in there. And I have since got rid of that. I, I've moved them into the location like the I have a folder for Max Sparky speaking gigs and I've got presentations in there. If I make a presentation for a, a case for a client, the presentation gets saved to the client file. 
And with files now, it's very easy to get to them, and it's, it's just not a problem. It, it's so nice that Apple has kind of got, you know, that has gone back on that and just said, okay, we're going to accept that the iOS devices are going to have a file system too. Yeah, well, let's let's touch on that for just a moment. By by default, iCloud Drive would give you a folder for apps that supported saving to iCloud, and and this I think is probably left over from previous versions of of iCloud, and and I think it's just been been legacy. So, for example, you could have a ByWord folder, you could have a Drafts folder, you could have a Keynote folder, you have a MyNode folder, a Numbers folder, Pages folder, and, and all those various folders. And that used to be, and I think it still is by default, where everything is saved. But your great experiment that you've talked about a few times on Mac Power Users, and I think you're still doing it, is you have just taken iCloud Drive and made it your primary cloud storage and are using iCloud Drive very similarly to how I, I would say we used to you used to use Dropbox and just put your normal file structure in there. And that has created no trouble for you. Nope. Good. Good to know. The um so anyway, so you've got your keynote. Hopefully you're making it there. You can. I, I just don't want people thinking that it's impossible or super difficult to do on iOS. You can do it on iOS, but just like you had to learn the intricacies of the menu system in Keynote on the Mac, you have to kind of learn the intricacies of the touch features on Keynote on the uh, the iPad. They're, they're just you don't lose that many features at this point. They've they've come quite a long way. And the other the other use for iOS, which we'll talk about later in the, the outline, is once you have a presentation, the iPad is a great place to practice it. All right. Um, well, I guess the why we're talking about building a presentation, uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on some some just slide basics. Uh, I, I covered a lot of this stuff in the presentation field guide, so maybe some of the stuff you've you've heard already, but. But some of it, it doesn't hear, hurt to hear a couple times. <laughs> uh, the first one being what I call the the aged font rule, <laughs> where I, uh, uh, so you know, one of the worst things you can do in a keynote presentation is put small text on a screen behind you. Um, you know, humans are only able to do one thing at a time, you know, I mean, in general. I totally believe all the research that says multitasking doesn't work. But the um, one of the things you do, if you put words on the screen and you speak at the same time, the people in the audience are going to do one of two things. They're going to listen to you and ignore the words. So then why did you put them on the screen? But more likely, they're going to read the words on the screen and ignore you. So why are you there? So <laughs> that's a, a problem. Uh, so I, I, I'm not a fan of a lot of words on the screen to begin with. But then the other problem is, it's it's super annoying if someone has words on the screen, but they're too small for you to read them. So I have the aged font rule. And that is you take the age of the oldest person in your audience, you know, and when I was back giving presentations at like Macworld, I would assume that was 70 because there were some, some folks there that, you know, were retired and they were checking Mac out. And uh, so then whatever the age of the oldest person is in the room, you are not allowed to use a font anywhere in your presentation that is smaller than that age. So going to Macworld, smallest font I'm going to use is 70 points. Wow. Okay. It's a great rule. Uh, I, I got it from somebody. I don't know where. I heard it somewhere a long time ago, and I, I love the idea of it, and I follow it. And I once in a while, I catch myself trying to cheat. Like I'm like, oh, I want to put this here. Nope, can't do it. It's got to be uh, the same size of the age of the oldest person in the room. So that way, you know, everybody gets to read it. 
And it's also a good encouragement not to put a lot of words on the screen anyway. Uh, you should scrutinize every word, honestly, when you put it on a presentation. If you've got three words on the screen and you can say it in two, then say it in two. Um, those things, like I said, are there to reinforce all the words coming out of your mouth. And uh, words are, aren't really, you know, printed words on the screen aren't really a great way to set an image in someone's brain anyway. But if you are going to do it, make it a few words and make them nice and big because that's your best chance. Like when I give my my presentation and and give my shtick about who I am, uh, what if it's a legal thing? I always put the number of years I've been practicing, and it's just a slide at this point that says twenty four in a big font. <laughs> twenty four years I've been practicing law. Twenty four years, blah 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 blah. But people in the audience just see the number twenty four. That's the one thing they get out of the one or two sentences I say anyway. So I'll go ahead and put that on the screen. Um. So that's one of my rules. And and that 24, maybe the that's the only thing you put on the screen, right? Yeah. Oh, just pick 24. All right. Do you do you do it like um like Jack Bauer 24? I should. I you should. should. This this is your this is if this is your 24th year, this is your one year you have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it is. You're right. The other thing I do is I have a, a thing where I because I do um I represent in my day job, I represent a lot of small companies. I'm kind of like their advisor. You know, they call me when there's a problem. Half the time, I'm not even the lawyer that fixes all the problem. I hook them up with a specialist on something. But um, so it reminds me of the Robert De Niro char character in The Godfather, you know, um, what they call it, consigliere. I, I don't know. I'll get it wrong. So I'm not going to try, even though I just did. Uh, so I'll, I'll put up a picture of him from The Godfather. I'm, saying, I'm like that guy and I'll leave it on the screen for like two seconds and then click past it. Once again, that's an opportunity for the people that are paying attention to giggle. People aren't paying attention to say what I miss. So, you know, the idea is you just kind of uh, go through that. And the stuff on the screen is just reinforcing what you're saying. It's not repeating your words for you. It's not giving your audience the easy out of ignoring you and just reading the words on the screen. We've got time for one more rule. Yeah, give us another rule. Bullets are for guns, not for presentations. Oh, you know. I think I break this rule. Well, we all we all break it. Let's. You don't have bullet points, or? Yeah, I mean, we all break it once in a while. But I think that the point I would like to make is you need to have a good reason to break it. You know, you need to have a really good reason because once you put bullets on the screen, once again, everybody just disengages from you because they're going to say, "Okay, so there's three things I need to know about this, these three bullets," and then the noise coming out of that person's mouth doesn't really matter. And so if you're going to put bullets on the screen, make them really short and then use the tools of the application. Like Keynote has a great application feature, an animation. I usually use a wipe for this where it can wipe a bullet on the screen one paragraph at a time or one bullet at a time. So if you're going to if you're going to have to put a bullet on the screen, uh, you may have a title, you know, uh, you know, something about the Roadrunner. And then and then the first bullet is Wiley Coyote. So. You don't say anything about Wiley e. Coyote. You tell them why Wiley e. Coyote is your first bullet point. And then when you're done saying that, you click the button and then the first wipe comes across and it has the Wiley e. Coyote bullet. And then you you just shut your mouth for, you know, two or three seconds. So they process that, oh, that's a summary of what he just told me. 
And then you start speaking again and explain the next bullet. And you talk about what it is about. And when you're done, you push the button and then the next wipe comes across. So if you're going to put bullets on the screen, don't just scatter them on the screen and basically, you know, give away the end of the story. Uh, make them after the effect and just wipe them on the screen one at a time. And so you only have one bullet up at a point at any given time, right? No, no. as I get to the third bullet, the two will stay on the screen. but by then they've already processed that, you know, and that silence that you give them when you will put the wipe on the screen for a few seconds, it's important because, uh, once you put those words on the screen until they processed it, they are not going to listen to you. They have no ability to hear the nuance of what you're talking about while you're feeding them information on the screen. All right. So let me, let me ask this question. Give, give us an example of when someone is going to be tempted to put a bullet on the screen, but there's a better way to do it. Can you think of, I know I've put you on the spot here. No, I, I can tell you. Usually what it is is when they've got more than two or three bullets that they can't summarize in a couple words. And what that means is rather than have 10 slides to cover a topic properly, they're trying to gr uh, cram all that information in small fonts and 10 bullets on the screen at once. And it's a it's a... It's an easy mistake to make. I don't know what it is. People feel like, I think some people feel like every slide they, they create is going to cost them an extra $50. I mean, when I first started practicing law, we didn't have PowerPoint. That was before PowerPoint. I'm old, Katie. But the, uh, what we would do is we would go, everybody had a blow-up guy, you know, and you'd go to the blow-up guy and you'd give him like 50 bucks to make a blow-up of something. And you'd give your closing argument, you'd have a stack of these blow-ups that you'd be cycling through. I think some people still think that's the case and they got to pay extra if they were going to put extra slides. And that's why they jam a bunch of bullets into one slide. If you find yourself making a bunch of bullets, then stop and think, well, hey, could I break this up into a whole section of the presentation? And rather than put bullets with what they're going to say, the words that are going to come out of my mouth, pick a cool picture or or, you know, one image or one word that summarizes that bullet and put it on the screen and then move to the next one. So, all right. So if I'm giving my presentation and my topic is Wiley Coyote and I'm on my Wiley Coyote section and I'm talking about ways to die, if you're Wiley Coyote, instead of saying Anvil, you know, TNT, how, how else does he die? What, I mean, you're the resident Wiley Coyote expert. He, he blows himself up. He runs into a wall that's painted on. That's one of my favorite. He paints a, a cave on the wall. Right. And the roadrunner can run through it, but he can't. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Then so, the, so then you're. Wait, wait, wait. There's one more I have okay. to tell you. The All right. One, that's when he runs off a cliff and he looks down. That's always when he dies is when he looks down. If he, if he just wouldn't look down, he'd be fine. But he keeps looking down and then he falls to his death. Okay. So, so, so make slides of that for me without putting bullets. I mean, I could do bullet points, you know, ways to die is Wiley Coyote, bullet one, anvil, bullet two. Yeah. Well, just, you just, you just answered your own question. Uh, slide one, a picture of an anvil. You know, slide two, a picture of a cave. Slide three, a picture of a cliff or whatever, you know. So you could do this without bullets at all. You just got to be willing to make a few additional slides. And it makes the presentation go better. Uh, I think the, the transition of the images or whatever imagery or words you're going to use as you go through it is more entertaining to people. And again, those slides are reinforcing your words instead of replacing your words, which is really the goal of a good presentation. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends at Casper, the Internet's favorite mattress. Get $50 off select mattresses with the code NPU.
Casper is the company focused on sleep, and they're dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. You spend a third of your life sleeping. If you spent a third of your life doing anything, you'd want to make sure it's the best it can possibly be. And that's why you need a Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for humans with engineering to soothe and support your natural geometry. It's got all the right support in all the right places. So what goes into making a Casper mattress so comfortable? They combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the U.S., and their breathable design helps to regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And with over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, Casper is very quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Until I got a Casper, buying a mattress was misery. You'd go into these strange stores, you'd be laying on a mattress. I don't know about you, but I'm laying on a mattress in a public place. I just feel kind of weird. And you sit there for 30 seconds to decide if you're going to spend a pile of money on a mattress that you're going to spend a good portion of your life on. Casper solves that problem. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They deliver directly to your door, and if for any reason you don't love it, Casper has a hassle-free return policy. Casper mattresses in my house are like Tribbles. I got one when they first started sponsoring, but since then I've bought several more because everybody in my house lays on the Casper mattress and they want one for their bed. I sleep on a Casper every night, and I love it. We tried a memory foam mattress before Casper, and it didn't work. We just like fell into it, felt like mummies. But that's not true with the Casper. It's a very comfortable sleep, and every time I go to a hotel, I miss my Casper back at home. And the good news is you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com MPU and using MPU at checkout. Some terms and conditions apply. Once again, that's casper.com MPU and offer code MPU. We thank Casper for all of their support of the show. I got a couple more if you want them. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear all of the Max, Max Barkey uh, tips. I also want to hear more ways to die if you're Wiley Coyote. If you if you got any more of those, have you ever read the rules of uh, Roadrunner? No. Have you ever heard of this? I'm I'm gonna find it and put it in the show notes. It was back when I guess Mel Blanc was making the Roadrunner cartoon. He had a bunch of rules um, about how the Roadrunner goes, like. I remember one of them was the roadrunner never leaves the road. He always stays on the road. And number two is the roadrunner never directly kills the coyote. The coyote usually dies because something he did went wrong. You know, you know, it's, he's kind of the, the engineer of his own demise, but it's fascinating that they had these rules. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I'll put that in the show notes for uh, people that are interested. And in the roadrunner, you know, our show notes are just, um, are, are full of all kinds of interesting information. We should mention to people, I've, I've had a couple of people ask us where they can, can find the show notes for our show. I, I thought it was fairly obvious, but if, if you don't know, if you're fairly new, welcome. There are a couple of ways you can find the show notes to our show. You can find them at relay.fm slash MPU slash whatever the episode number is. This is episode 420. Uh, they should also appear, if you're listening to this on a podcast of uh, client on iOS, uh, they should appear in your podcast client for for iOS and and you can find them there as well. But also, if if you are um, automation inclined, there is a um, I, I believe there is an if this then that rule that you can find if you search, or you can just create one uh, where you can take the RSS feed of the show 
and then direct that RSS feed to whether you want an email or whether you want it to go to Evernote or to whatever your platform is of choice. And that will send you whatever you ask for with the show notes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and we we put effort into those show notes, so uh, go check them out. Hopefully, there'll be something in there for you every show. And we should take this moment to thank um, JT, who does, helps us quite a bit with the show notes. So we put some effort in, but JT puts a lot of effort in. So uh, another uh, rule, I think, is the idea of simple imagery. And the uh, I, I'm going to get the science wrong, but basically, humans have different ways of learning. So I'm, I'll summarize. Uh, if you have just words on the screen and words out of your mouth, those are very similar metaphors for learning. And for some people that works. But if you look at the studies, people learn visually a lot better than they learn with words. I mean, I guess it goes back to us trying not to get killed by saber-toothed tigers. Um, so imagery is a very powerful way to reinforce the words coming out of your mouth and send a message home. And I think I've even shared on this show some of the ones I've used in the past, but and I'm not going to go back through all that. But uh, do be thinking about the imagery that can support what you're saying. Like we were talking about with Wiley Coyote, um, you're talking about how he dies, and a picture of an anvil on the screen is much better than you saying he dies by an anvil and writing the word anvil on the screen. You know, an actual picture of the anvil is going to stick in people's brains much better. So you want to be thinking about that, and this goes back to the mind note, to the plan as you start you know, filling in what you want the presentation to say, you should be thinking about the imagery you want to give to your audience at the time and, and giving yourself, you know, weeks to kind of cook this stuff up. You're going to come up with great ideas for imagery. It just takes a little while. I think for most people it does. That's why you get really hurt if you have to make it up at the last minute, because you're just going to go with the first image you can find. So that being said, where's the best way to, to do the simple imagery? Cause a lot of people get you know confused by that. You know, how are you going to get a good image on the screen? Uh, Google Images is a great way to go. You know, go search an image app. Yeah, we should just mention that you should be careful um, for the images that you use, certainly depending on the audience of your presentation and how you're using your presentation. Just because you find an image on the Internet doesn't mean you're necessarily supposed to use it. Yeah, and I was going to get – you have to have rights for it, and it depends on the type of talk you're going to give. I mean, if you're going to give a TED Talk, get – you know, get the rights for it. If you're giving a talk to your local Apple user group, I think you're probably okay with just about anything. Well, I guess this isn't, don't sue me. If you, <laughs> this is the hard part of being a lawyer. Uh, be, be aware of the audience and where you're using those images and whose images you're using. Yeah. Lawyers ruin everything, Katie. Lawyers, we, we really everything. do. But anyway, if you're searching for images, go to uh, a couple tricks are when you do the, the image search, put the word PNG at the end. And even the word transparent. And that way you'll find images that are usually already cut out for you. So you don't have a background to deal with. Um, there's also a really cool uh, trick in Apple in Keynote, built right into Keynote. But it's also in preview called Instant Alpha, where Apple has made a pretty powerful and easy to use tool where you can um, just take the, the mouse put it on the background section, give it a drag, and it removes it for you. And it does an okay job. Uh, some of the apps we've talked about in the past, um, like uh, our sometimes sponsor Pixelmator does this, um, Acorn does it. There's a, uh, the Adobe apps, I'm, I'm sure, do it, although I haven't had an Adobe app for a while. Uh, but So there's a lot of ways to remove the background, but please do remove the background if at all possible because the the more noise you have in the image, the less likely they are to focus on whatever part of the image you want. I mean, if you see the anvil, but you also see you know a bunch of other tools and a workbench and other stuff, uh, they're not going to know what they're supposed to be looking at. If you remove all that and just have the anvil, it, you're in much better shape. 
Now, the, the other thing is I use a, a service, you know, getting back to kind of the point of make sure you're legal about this stuff. Um, I use deposit photos. It's one word. I started using them when I first started writing field guides because they had a good license that makes sense and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. There may be better photo services now, but I've been with deposit photos so long that I just stay with them. I'm working on a field guide right now and I'm buying deposit photos for use in the book. So if you want to go buy images, uh, that's one service, but there's a whole bunch of others. Uh, and I guess the, the other part I would say is be mindful of what kind of clip art you use. Like in my book on presentations, I wrote, um, I think I used the puppy dies analogy. I said, if you use any of this clip art, a puppy dies. And one of them is like two people shaking hands. Oh, okay. I thought you were gonna, there was going to be a bad image of a puppy, but okay. No, no, no. But a puppy does die if you use an image of two people shaking hands in your presentation. So I like puppies. Don't kill a puppy, you know? I mean, there's images that are like so stock art that everybody's seen them a million times. And if you use them, you know, that's just mailing it in. Do it right. Find a picture of an anvil instead. Um, one of the quick ways that I use to find photos is I use the launch bar. And then I've got a, there's actually a shortcut built in for, for Google photos. Uh, I just want to go back to Google images for a minute. If you go into Google images, rather not Google photos, um, there is a way that you can search for images. And then there's a way that you can um, add in the specific settings for search. You can search for royalty free images. You can search for images that have a specific license. Uh, I don't know that those are always um, accurate, but it's, it's certainly a starting point. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Bing images are good too. Uh, uh, Microsoft search. Um, what about um, transitioning and animating your slides? This is an area where I think you can really up your, your keynote or your PowerPoint game and it, it can take a little bit to learn and it can easily be overdone. Yeah. Less is more. Uh, uh, transitions and animations really are a great touch, but you need a light touch with that stuff. Don't, don't go crazy. I was thinking, you know, they have a Apple has this really cool animation where everything that you you attach it to turns to flames and burns up. And the only time I ever get to use that is when I'm teaching people how not to use animation. I still haven't found a legitimate reason. I guess I need a case where something catches on fire. So then in front of the jury, I can literally have it catch on fire, you know, in my presentation. That That's one that you only want to use once in a presentation, but it's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure you even want to use it once. <laughs> the truth. If if you have a reason to, it's a good one to use once. But you don't you don't want everything you don't want every transition to be a sparkle. You don't want every transition to be fireworks, you know. Uh, honestly, again, you almost don't want any transition to be a sparkle <laughs> or fireworks. I, I think like I said, it's a light touch this stuff. I mean, they have some simple fades. They have one that's like a growing fade where they've combined them. Over the last several years, they've added a bunch of interesting ones. Uh, so just talking about like word transitions, you know, or, or effects on words, which is nice. Uh, the one I use by far the most is the wipe. And the wipe, I think it defaults to top to down, but you can change the direction. I change it left to right. There's also one called typewriter that can be useful. Like when I'm displaying something off a, a letter or something I want to show as text, so I put it in typewriter mode where it looks like it's being typed on the screen. But those are very simple animations and they kind of serve a purpose to kind of get the eye moving in the right direction, but they, they don't stand out so much. You know, you, you see two sparkle animations in a row and suddenly you know, just like 
it's kind of the equivalent of writing in all caps. Everything is just like yelling. And, and I think that that ruins it because if you use these transitions appropriately um, and these effects appropriately, when you do use them, they can really help indicate something like um, one of the things I do is I, I always have my my slides uh, or my decks kind of built into different sections. And that kind of roots back to the mind note where I had, you know, a section on this and a section on that. And usually my transition between slides is is no transition. It's just an immediate, you know, jump to the next slide. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you that. Do you do you have a, tra- a default transition but you just jump? You just have a cuz I usually use a dissolve between slides cuz I find it a little more pleasing but not distracting. Yeah, I did dissolve for a long time, but the problem is I do like to to click fast and have the kind of the, the jokey stuff occasionally show up and the dissolve just kind of adds it it it, it, it slows the process down. So if I've got a lot of slides, if I've got a, a a presentation with a small number of slides, I'll use a dissolve as a default, but but generally I have no transition in between. But then when I'm jumping between those major sections, I use a big animation, like they've got somewhere it zooms out and then zooms back into a new slide. And that's a great way to kind of communicate to the audience, okay, we're done with that topic, we're, we're moving to something else now. And in that case, the transition really serves a purpose. And it's the same way with effects on the screen. You know, like Apple has a great one now, ironically, uh, called Anvil, <laughs> after we've been talking about this stuff. So we're, we're definitely using that for our Anvil when we're talking yeah. about our presentation yeah. with Wiley Coyote. That would be an appropriate use of this transition. It, it would. And it drops it on the screen, whether they're words or an image, and it makes a little bit of dust on the bottom like it's really heavy and weightful. It has a lot of weight to it. And they uh, they use that like when they do a price drop or something and they're really happy about something. They'll do an anvil transition and it serves a purpose, but it's, you know, they don't use it all the time. And I think Apple's very good about not overdoing it with their with their uh, trans- transitions and effects as well. So I, I think the general rule is, is have a reason to use an effect or a transition. Uh, don't just do it because you think it's there and you want to push the button and show how smart you are. I also, you know, there's a separate thing related to animations and things like that. Um, like one of the, uh, the effects that is a trans, it's a transition effect, but it's, it's an animation combined. It's magic move. And I, I was at Macworld when Apple announced this effect and I was so happy because I had been for years um, hand animating slides. Like uh, sometimes I do a construction case and we've got to demonstrate how water goes through a wall or something. And, and I'd have to make water droplets and animate each one. And now uh, with Magic Move, you can put something on the screen in one place and you duplicate the slide with the Magic Move transition on and you can move them to a different place. You can even resize them and rotate them. And now when you press the transition, it automatically magically moves the uh, the objects from where they are on the first screen to where they are on the second screen. Um, so that can be really helpful. Like uh, we were talking about bullets earlier let's say you've got two or three bullets on the screen uh that you want to have appear in the next slide with an image underneath them or some sort of information underneath them so so imagine you've got three bullets you know um uh, one two three or let's even make it instead of words let's use images let's say that you've got the anvil and the firecracker for and the cliff on the screen 
then you just duplicate that slide and then you drag them up on the t- across the top of the screen in the second slide. So then when you hit the transition to the audience, everything just magically moves to a new place and then you can start writing underneath it. And in their heads, they're tracking with you because the information from the first slide just moved in the second slide. So they, you don't have to explain what it is because it's there. And, and I know that you could also just recreate it there, but the move, the motion of moving it there, I think really helps, you know, at a very fundamental level for the audience to track what's going on and just to continue with you on. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, so, so this stuff can be really useful. You should understand it thoroughly, but you should also be a little bit leery of going overboard with that, that stuff. How do you know if you're going overboard? I mean, do you, I'm sure you sit there and you watch your presentation several times before you actually give a talk, but is, is there something that's cluing you in? Like if, if you just think, Oh, this might be a little much is that code that, Oh yeah, it was way too much. Cause if you think something might be a little much, you're probably become desensitized to it. Yeah. It's a taste thing, but I, I think my fundamental concern is if you use the overuse those things, the audience is going to be de- become desensitized to it. So they really have no, they serve no purpose. And then it just takes more time. And, and, you know, the whole point of giving a presentation is to keep their attention. Uh, um, when I know I've said this on this show before, but I'll say it again. When I was an altar boy, the best advice I ever got about being giving presentation was given to me by Father Leo. He said, you never save a soul after 20 minutes. <laughs> and, and I was thinking about, you know, as a kid, I was like, what are you talking about? But it, growing up, I get it. After 20 minutes, they're gone. It doesn't matter how great your presentation is. So you better get that information across to them. And anything you do in the presentation that gives their brains an excuse to go on a vacation is bad news for you. So that's why I'm super careful with it. I think part of it is, you know, I think these are things that change over time, too. I wonder, like, my kids make presentations and they go crazy with all that stuff. And maybe for uh, other kids their age, that's what you need to do. But um but for me, I'm I'm pretty conservative about that stuff, and I, I want to bring out the cool transitions and and animations. I just don't want to overuse them and make them turn them into just noise. So we've we've covered our our animations and knowing when not to go overboard with that. Have have you run into any any weird problems when you're when you're trying to set up the slides? Has there been anything that hasn't quite worked right either because you know your animations didn't work or or maybe something else on the slide didn't work? Where do we run into problems with these things? Well, I think there's some what I call weird slide problems where you just there's slides that that everybody needs to make or often get made and you know there's some mechanics to it that are kind of difficult. So I thought I'd share just a few ideas on that. Okay. Um, the first is video. Uh, a, a keynote puts video in it just fine. It's got controls. Uh, you can you know start and stop the video while you're running keynote. So it's all great. But uh, if you're going to put video in a presentation, it needs to be really good production video. Don't put junky, jiggly, terrible video in your presentation. If if that's the only video you have, you should not use it. You mean I? can't just grab the YouTube, whatever, and, you know, go for it. Well, some of the stuff on YouTube is super high quality. So maybe, <laughs> you know, but the, uh, but, but if you're going to shoot your own video, make it high production quality, make sure the audio is good, you know, just cover your bases with that. And, uh, and talking about your YouTube video, if you want to take video off your computer and use it, make sure you have rights to it, you know, like uh, we were talking about earlier, but, um, you can, uh, a way to get that video, because a lot of times the video on the internet isn't that easy to, to capture. 
And I use ScreenFlow, which is my screencasting app, all the time for this stuff, where I just take ScreenFlow, I shoot video of the screen while it's playing, and then I just crop it in ScreenFlow to get the video out of it. And then I can export it out of ScreenFlow into a, a video format that I can import into Keynote. So that's like a weird problem I solve all the time. Uh, speaking of screen flow, if you're going to do a screen, uh, cast, like you're going to capture your iPhone or your, your iPad, put the frame around it of an iPhone or an iPad. So the audience knows what, what it's talking about. Where do you get those frames? If you just do a search online for an image, you can find them. They're out there. Yeah. I think Apple offers them through their developer portal. I don't know if they're available to the public at large, but I, I know there are some on the internet. I think, um, didn't they open up the developer program to anyone now, at least at the basic level? At the basic level, they did. I'm not sure whether these are part of it, but you might want to look there first. Uh, another common problem is like displaying documents. This is a lawyer problem, but I think a lot of people want to put documents in their keynote presentations. And that's fine, but don't make your audience try and read those documents. I mean, if you're going to do that... Um, uh, there's a couple ways around it. The first is you just draw a yellow box around the section you want them to read and and uh, open the opa uh, the opacity on it. So like draw yellow boxes like you're drawing a highlighter and and make it so you can see through the yellow so you see the text underneath and then you can zoom out use the fade or the zoom effect to to open a text box with the actual text in it that you just type in. That's one way to make it easier to read. Another way is if it's a really good image of a document like you know you got a scan snap turn it up to 600 dots per inch you can zoom the document up with magic move so you uh you first you put the the full picture of the document on the screen then you make it you duplicate the slide use the magic move transition and in the second one you know pull the document wide so you can see the exact text you want to read and that transition in effect uh, makes it look like a zoom into the document Make sense? Right. I do this all the time and it doesn't take that long. It's it's very easy to pull off, but you 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 scan scan the higher res PDF, you stick it on this document and show it to them and then the magic move effect really or the zoom effect, uh, you think you could do it either way, but it really pulls people in. And then you can even do that for multiple sections of the document. If you say I want to show you line 2, line 12, line 4, you know, and and then you go back and forth, back and forth. I usually put a box around the part that I'm pulling out. I usually do a, a shadow around it. Um and it's it's great. It it has a great effect. And cuz you're like, let me just pull show you the actual document here. Now, another way I use that is sometimes I'll have a timeline and uh, what I'll do is make like I, I'll use um, a timeline app to um, to make a fancy timeline, but it'll be super detailed and have lots of detail. It's not appropriate for a presentation because, you know, the font age rule, you know, the, the fonts are going to be too small and the images can be too small for anyone to see. But what you do is you whatever app you've built the timeline in, you render a super big version of it, you know, like, you know, 6000 pixel type size image of it and you have to be a little careful because if it gets too big keynote has a problem but you get it as big as you can to make keynote run okay and then you just put that into um into keynote and you hit command d to duplicate that slide and then you zoom the image up to the part of the timeline you want to see and then you hit command d for that 
and you zoom to the next section of the timeline you want to see, and you you do that for however many times you need to do it, and at the end you zoom back out to the the big wide picture. I used to do this all the time with uh, timelines that I'd be sharing with a jury. That's like a, an exhibit and trial. It's too small to read on a presentation, but if you zoom through it, it's kind of like it was Prezi before there was Prezi. You know, <laughs> so I would it would it would move around and then use the magic move transition between all of those and it's a it's a great way to move around a big document and then at the end pull out so whoever sees it says okay that's that document so i can go look at that if i want the details this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by tiny the automatic time tracking app for mac os in today's fast moving world the next distraction is right around the corner You know what I'm talking about. You open your browser to do important work, but suddenly get distracted somewhere else. It's easy to lose track of that stuff. Before you know it, you've fallen down several rabbit holes and lost complete track of your projects. Not only that, you can't determine where you really spent your time working. That's why you need an app to help you stay on top of your time. But manually time tracking interrupts your workflow and is easy to lose track of. Timing is different. Timing automates your time tracking to save you as much time as possible. First, it automatically tracks how you spend your time on your Mac, broken down by app, website, and document. But that's a lot of data to work through, so timing lets you use drag and drop to create rules that automatically categorize your time. Timing also understands that not all of your work happens on the Mac. That's why it automatically suggests to fill gaps in your timeline so you never have to forget to keep track of a meeting. It can even automatically ask you what you did whenever you returned to your Mac. Starting late last year, I went on a personal productivity binge. I realized that I wasn't doing a very good job of managing my time and my priorities, and a big part of that is making an assessment of where you spend your time. So I installed Timing on my Mac, and it is feeding me tons of data. I'm still using it today, and every day at the end of the day, I take a look at my timing reports to see how I'm doing, where I made mistakes, and how I can get better at this stuff. There is nothing easier than timing because it does all of the work for you. Timing is so confident that you'll love their fuss-free approach. They offer a totally free trial. So head over to timingapp.com MPU today to download a 14-day trial and get 10% off when you purchase. Use timing. I'm serious. Stop worrying about time and focus on doing your best work instead. So once again, head over to timingapp.com slash MPU for that 10% off. And thank you, Timing, for your support of this show. Uh, Just one more of these uh, tricks that I use a lot that I think people might be able to use in their daily or their presentations is uh, the, the amount of horizontal space sometimes runs out. Like if you're making a timeline where you don't want it to be like that zoom in style, but you actually want to put the words on the screen, but you just don't have enough vertical space to go across and cover it all. And that's where I use a push transition of the slide. So you draw the first half of the timeline on slide one, you draw the second half on slide two, but you duplicate it. So the timeline itself, the line across the center of the screen that you're working off of is in the exact same spot. And if you want to get real clever in slide number one, on the left side, you pull the timeline in an inch or two and put a circle around it. So like you can see the start of the timeline and then on slide number two, you pull the, the line in from the right an inch or two and put a circle at the end. So you see the end of the timeline and then use the push transition. And it just looks like it's sliding across 
the timeline as you're going. And I, I know not everybody has timelines, but just think about this principle and you'll find some use for it in a presentation. Any other um, common problems that we, we need to talk about or, or should we move on to talking about getting ready for a presentation? Yeah, let's, let's, I mean, there's more. I covered a bunch in the book if you want to go check it out. But the, um, but yeah, let's talk about testing and practice because I think that's another place where a lot of people make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think I've made the keynote. I've made my presentation. I, I'm closing my laptop at 10 o'clock the night before I'm supposed to give it. I, I've made the presentation. I'm done. It's good, right? That's all you need to do. Sure. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, I guess if it's a presentation you don't care that much about, you can get through it. I I, I guess I should say that I'm, I'm kind of crazy about this stuff, but I want my presentations to be amazing. And uh, you're going to have presentations in your life that don't need this much work. But for the ones that are important to you, you know, assuming you got on the bandwagon early, you did your planning, you prepared your slides, uh, that third phase of this thing, testing and practice, is super important. And I, I was thinking about when I was working on the outline for today's show about, and this is in the book, but I was just thinking, you know, comedians and politicians are a good example. Like politicians, they go and they give that stump speech and they get really good at it over time. And by the end of their campaign, they've got every little nuance of it down. And if you've seen it for the first time, which a lot of people are that come see them, uh, you know, they just eat it up because it's not something though that they just made up on them on the fly. You know, they worked on that and comedians are the same way. Uh, in LA, there's a couple of comedy clubs here. I go to with my daughter where they're known for being kind of the place that the comedians work on their material and they try jokes and they, some work and some don't. And if you come back in a month, you might see the same one again, but it's slightly different. And that's, that's the way you need to be with your presentation too. I start like talking through my presentation as early as the mind note outline. Like there's certain parts of it where I'll just practice saying things and kind of work on it. So like a comedian or a politician, by the time I get to presentation day, it's really just second nature to me. And I think once you've got that slide deck prepared, that's the time that you really want to just woodshed that. How in, in how do you get the timing for a presentation down? Because timing can be so important when you've got a limited period of, of time. You know, you, maybe you're given a 15-minute presentation or the hardest ones are when you're crunched and you've got a very short period of time. That can be so key. How do you get that worked out? Yeah, one of my favorite presentations I ever gave was back in the Macworld days. They had one where everybody had to give a good tip in five minutes. And they had a big clock on the stage that started counting down the moment you started. And I like that. I like kind of that that feeds right into the kind of presentations I make anyway. So it's it's great. But uh, the trick to that is, is clicking through. You know, once you get it, like I was talking about earlier, put it on your iPad and just start swiping through the slides and getting used to them. Um, I almost never use speaker notes in my presentations because by the time I get to presentation day, I've been through it so much. I just don't need speaker notes. I can just do it. I know what the next slide is going to be. I do like to see what the next slide is going to be just to, you know, as a safety net, but I don't need, I don't need it feeding me any words that I need to say. It's, it's fine. And, and I think it's working through, um, there's a, you know, more hippie stuff is visualization. It's something I started doing years ago where I don't just do this for presentation. I do it for a lot of things in my life, but just kind of visualize yourself standing there, giving the presentation. It, it, it helps you kind of work out the kinks and get rid of the butterflies when it comes time to do it. Cause in your brain, you've already been through the process, but running through it is the way to go. Uh, uh, if it's a big presentation and you want to make sure you get it right, set up your iPhone and take a video of yourself giving it 
as you walk through. You know, put it on your Apple TV through AirPlay and walk, click through it. Um, have friends over. My wife and kids saw a bunch of my, you know, big presentations over the years, both both legal and, and nerd stuff. And having an audience there helped. I mean, they weren't super interested all the time, but they, they were able to be in the room and that helped. Um, some of the presentations I've given over the years in tech stuff, um, I, I'd call the local Apple store and say, hey, would you guys like me to give a, a presentation on paperless or whatever I'm talking about at Macworld or the next big event? And a lot of times they'll say, yeah, we'd love to have it in because they've got you know their business clients or whatever that want to come in. So they'd have coffee and donuts and I'd give a presentation. But the fact is, I would have already given the presentation in front of an audience by the time I got to the place where I really needed to give the presentation. And you can find, you know, outlets to do this. And I think it's super important to do that. It's really helpful to get the words out of your brain, onto your lips. Like when you create the presentation, uh, you think you know what you want to say. Like this is really dangerous or toxic if you do it the night before and then the next day you give the presentation. Because in your brain, you know exactly what you want to say. But somewhere between the wires in your brain and the wires at your lips and tongue, things get a little confused. So the more times you say the words, uh, the better you're going to be at it. I can't stress that enough. If you think you can give a presentation after you create the slides without actually saying the words, you're going to have problems. You're going to get tongue-tied. Um, so, so get them out of your mouth and same in front of other people, same from the video, the whole thing. Um, another thing I would recommend in, t- in this pra- period of testing and practice is just really nail the opening and the ending, uh, to such an extent that if I've got a, a presentation that I think I might be nervous about, like if someone says you need to go talk about, you know, Mac in front of Tim Cook, well, I'm going to be nervous when I'm there. So I'm going to memorize the opening paragraph and my closing paragraph. I'm going to have them where I could be on life support, stand up, say that paragraph, and then sit back down and go back to being on life support. It wouldn't matter. Right. I, I remember when I was in law school, do, do you ever do a moot court when you, well, yeah, you did debate team, you know that. And, and they said, if you do nothing else, you memorize the first three or four sentences and, and you memorize, good morning, my name is you know, or, or whatever you're going to say and write it down if you have to, because especially if you're standing up in front of an audience that perhaps is a little intimidating and and you haven't given a presentation to, there is nothing that you can do sometimes if you get up there and you just freeze other than knowing that you have that first paragraph, those first few sentences either memorized or written down in front of you. And if you can just get those out it it will jog you enough that that you can roll for from there. Um I do want to take a little tangent and and talk about this for a little bit. I don't I don't know if you have any experience with it or if you can speak about it perhaps from your debate experience. Um what about stage fright? What about nerves getting up in front of people? Cuz sometimes you have to give a presentation to people and um that is not the easiest thing to do. I I will tell you that I tend to be more introverted by nature. Um, however, I, I read this great book. I'll have to put a link to it in the show notes. It's, it's called Quiet. And I think the subpower, the subtitle is something like The, the Power of Introverts. And I, I had always thought, you know, the stereotype is an introvert is someone who is shy. You know, if you're shy, you must be an introvert. Or if you're an introvert, you must be shy. And, and that is certainly not the case. Many introverts are not shy. And I have no problem standing in front of a crowd of, of hundreds of people or, or getting in on a microphone 
in in front of tens of thousands of people and giving a presentation if and this is the big if if I know what I'm doing um i I actually find the more painful part getting down off the stage and 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 talking one on one to those people and 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 answering individual one on one conversations than i than I do being on in the stage in in front of people. But I know that public speaking can be a great fear and a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm better in front of a crowd than one-on-one, so whatever that means. But you're right, and I feel it all the time. I, I've been doing presentations, and I've been talking to juries forever, it seems like. And I still get nerves every time I do it. So I don't think that's ever going to go away, which is probably why I spend so much time preparing and making sure that I don't stumble on myself because I've, I've done the prep and that, you know, that idea of memorizing the opening is a great, is a great way to help get over that. Cause you know, you're going to be okay for the first couple sentences. And for most people, once you get started, you're rolling. And especially if you have gone through the, you know, Max Sparky madness of prepping it, starting out with a mind note outline and slowly building the slides and practicing saying the words, you are going to be fine because it's ingrained in you at that point. You know, when you do it at the last minute, I can't guarantee you're not going to have problems. But if you spend the time to do this right, you will be okay. You just got to get up there and get yourself rolling. The the book is actually Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. It's by Susan Cain. This is good. It sounds like a good book. It's a good book. I, I might have a copy I could bring you up in Chicago, but I think I might have loaned it out. So put it in your Audible queue. It's a it's a good um it's a it's a great listen. I think I kind of switch between reading it and listening it into uh an on audio audiobook. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by 1Password. You can learn more and save up to 20% by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. So if you've been listening to Mac Power Users for any length of time, you already know the importance of using a password manager like 1Password to save all of your important information, to make sure that you're using strong, secure passwords across all of your various websites, and you know that using good password policies is probably the most important thing that you can do to keep yourself safe online. But what about all the other people in your life? What about your friends, your family, your colleagues, your coworkers? Maybe they don't quite know where, maybe they need a little nudge to get on the 1Password bandwagon. Well, now there's a way that you can help them too. The folks over at Agile Bits have recently introduced 1Password gift cards. That means that you can give the gift of 1Passwords and help those that you love stay safe online. You can give them to others or redeem them yourself, and you can purchase them in amounts of $20, $50, or $125. And because everybody loves to save money, right now 1Password is running a special promotion where they put the $125 gift cards on sale for only $99. You can learn more by heading over to their website at onepassword.com. And another request they've received recently is making it easier for people to pay for 1Password. And 1Password is updating the way that they manage money as well. So you can purchase 1Password gift cards with Apple Pay. And don't worry, you can use old-fashioned credit cards as well if you still want to. And you can also use 1Password now to manage your cryptocurrencies as well. Using 1Password gift cards are easy. Once you buy them, you'll receive an email with the information that you need. You simply redeem the gift card online. And if you want, you can even buy yourself the gift of a 1Password gift card and use it to renew your own membership or pass it on to a friend. You can learn more by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. And thanks to the kind folks over at 1Password for their continued support of the show. 
let's talk about presentation day. So we, we've done all this work. We spent an hour and 15 minutes in the show and, and we haven't talked about the actual day that you talk yet. <laughs> Actually, not, not a whole lot happens on presentation day. You've done all the hard work up front. Well, hopefully nothing. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. Um, I mean, really, you just, the, the whole point of presentation day is making sure that your presentation gets on the screen and then, and then that's the, the easy part is yet to come if you've done all the, the preparation up front, really. Yeah. Make, make sure you bring the gear in that book. I put a, a picture of my presentation day box with just a bunch of stuff. I keep, you know, gaffers tape and HDMI cables and all that stuff. Um, uh, make if you have remotes, bring extra batteries. Nothing's more frustrating than getting to the event and finding that the batteries are dead. And if you have a remote that doesn't have a slider on and off switch, that's probably going to happen to you because it, it's inevitable, right? Um, in fact, I, I don't even keep batteries in my remotes when I'm not giving a presentation. I take the batteries out after the presentation, so they're just aside. But have extras, uh, extension cords, um, adapters, all the adapters. You know, whatever you're going to give a presentation from, have all the adapters. Uh, be ready for problems. I guess is the thing. I I still get this about. I wrote a post about Max Barkey a few years ago. I went to. Um, to give a talk and it was one of these kind of um, anti-Apple IT guys. There aren't that many of those anymore. I know most IT guys are pretty cool about it, but this guy was like, oh, you're Apple. He kept calling me Apple. Like, that's not my name. I don't know why he keeps saying you're Apple, but he says, you're Apple, your thing won't work. And you know, it's like, I'm here, there's a room full of 50 people, they're paying me to be here and talk. I need this to work. Well, you're Apple, it won't work. And and they had a... um. Uh, not an HDMI. The uh, I I always call it RGB, but it's not RGB. What's the old style cable? The monitor cable. Rgb HDMI um, VGA 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 I know and VGA about, cable. Yeah. You know, and so I had the adapter, and I went ahead and I plugged the adapter in. I plugged into my Mac, and the guy sitting there with his arms crossed. And it didn't work. It did not. The presentation did not appear on the screen. And he says, see, I told you, your Mac, it doesn't work. And I was I was super angry because I needed the presentation that day. That's not what I wanted to do without a presentation. And uh, so I went in my box and I got my own RGB cable or VGA cable and because I brought my own cable. And I unplugged his cable from the projector plugged mine in and then plugged into my adapter and then it worked. So he had a bad cable. But in his mind, it was me because I was Mac. So, you know, it's just a, a little war story. Make sure you have all that stuff with you. Bring HDMI cables. If you're going to present off your iPad, bring all the lightning adapters. Don't just bring one, bring them all. Uh, quite often when I'm going to give a presentation, I call the the folks at the, the event and say, can you please take a picture of the back of your projector for me? You know, just everybody's got an iPhone or a, some kind of phone in their pocket with a camera and just send, take a picture and email it to me. And they, they often do, no problem. And almost every time I get there, it's the same projector. Not every time. So you still need to bring all the cables. But if you have an idea what you're heading into, that makes it a lot easier. But just bring all the adapters and all the cables. And if you feel real confident, leave most of them in your trunk. You don't need to bring them all in, but but have them available. Do you have a big bag that you, and a little bag, like, do you have a, a big bag with all the stuff that you, you could conceivably need, like your, your gaffers tape? I know you don't use duct tape anymore, right? 
Yeah, I was I was corrected on that. Everybody you were. told me. Yeah. yeah, and and all of your cables and that stuff, and then maybe like a little bag that you throw in your briefcase and take with you, or do you just keep it all together just in case? And and you like go to the presentation with like this gargantuous, like I think of like a doctor's bag, you know. That no, no it's even worse. It's like a tackle box. It's like a big tool rubber tackle toolbox. I keep that in the trunk, and I just bring the ones that I'm I'm sure I'll need, and usually that's enough. But sometimes it's not, and then I'll just go back out to the car and get the rest of them. Uh, it's I'm so manic about this stuff, Katie. I used to back when before the days of the iPad, I would bring two Macs. I would have like my kids had little, you know, the, the plastic iMacs. Remember those? Well, I would I would say, Daddy, get your computer for the day, and I would put the presentation on their computer, and I would leave that in my trunk too because I didn't want to get there and have my computer fry and not be able to give the presentation. So I would bring an extra Mac. These days, I bring a Mac and an iPad and the ability to project from either one, and that's fine. But So I, I even have an extra device. Um, I don't own a projector anymore. I, I had one for a long time and found I wasn't using it very much because every speaking gig I've done in the last couple of years, I've... Um, I've, they've had a projector there for me and I, uh, my, my niece is a school teacher and the budget cuts, yada, yada. I gave her my projector. So she's got one in her class. Yeah. You were thinking at one point about buying a, is it called a, it's not a micro projector cause it's not like the handheld one, but, but definitely a, a mini projector as in, you know, something that is, gosh, a, a smaller than shoebox size, let's say. Yeah, but they're very bright, and I feel like those are going to get a lot better in a couple of years, and I didn't have a need for it. So if I have to go give a talk where they don't have a projector and I have to get one, I'm probably going to buy one. But uh, I've decided I'm not going to buy it until I absolutely need it because it's only going to get better between now and then. Yeah, let me let me tell you a tale of woe in, in this regard, and, and to be very careful – Brightness matters. The quality of the projector matters. Projectors have dropped dramatically in price in the last few years. But I was a, a member. I am. I am still a member of a of a a group where we give presentations monthly. You know, we we have meetings and our members give presentations. And we had to change our meeting location. We used to meet at a location that had a projector, a very nice projector, and we use that. And we recently changed meeting locations, and we had to bring our own projector. And so the group was on a budget. And so on Amazon Prime Day last year, we bought a projector that was probably originally $150, $175 projector for, you know, $79.99. It was a Prime Day special. I, I don't even know the name of this projector to tell you what it was. It was some no-name off-brand projector. And it, it works. I mean, you plug an HDMI cable into it and it will project an image onto a screen. But man, I was watching that projector. We used it at our meeting this this week. And I was just like, oh gosh, I, I almost wished we had just not and and done something else. It, you know, it gets, it's, it's dim. It's a lot dimmer than a real project, a, a good projector. It gets blurry along the sides. You know, this is, I, I, there's a lumens count that you can look at at projectors when determining what you need to do. You want to be careful when buying your your prime day projectors, is what I'm saying. Get get all the lumens, just get them all. Don't leave any on the table. Uh, traveling to the event, this is one that's kind of weird. I always give my presentation as I drive to the event, wherever it is. You know, um, you're alone, you're in the car. It's a great opportunity once again to connect the wires from your brain to your lips one last time. Go for it. I I usually do this like in the shower. That that morning, the morning of something, I'm I'm constantly talking it out. 
Have I ever shared with you the time I got caught by some jury members practicing my closing statement? Oops, that's I think you have to disclose that. I well, it, it was weird. I was a it was a big case I was working on and I was driving back from the courthouse and it was giving my closing statement the next day. So I'm in my car just like talking up a storm and it was really hot. In Southern California there's an area called Riverside. It's far inland. I was out in Riverside. And I cracked my windows because my car got really hot. So I had my windows kind of open. I'm sitting there just talking the closing statement. You know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, blah, blah, blah. And and I, you know how you get that sense somebody's watching you? I was at a red light. I mean, I was literally in traffic at a red light. And you get that sense somebody's looking. And I look to my right. There's two members of the jury over there just looking at me, just laughing their butts off. I, I didn't report that. I guess I should have. But anyway, so they saw me. <laughs> But that's a great place to practice. You know, practice in the car. Get with the, with the windows up and the air conditioning on. Yeah, get the brain, the lips thing going. You'll be good. Um, you know, when you get there, assess the room. It's your problem, not somebody else's. Like that IT story I told you earlier. Nobody's really going to save your bacon on presentation day. You have to figure it out. The worst thing you can do when something goes wrong is, is to stand up there in the, cause the audience has heard it so many times before, you know, is, is to stand up there and say, Oh gosh, you know, we had, we had technical problems and I, I, I don't know. None of this worked. You know, they don't care. They've already heard it, you know? Yeah. I, I think our audience is probably good for this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I mean, you need to be responsible for your presentation. And if you're a person who typically doesn't understand how to connect projectors and you're going to give presentations to pay for your shoes, you need to turn yourself into somebody that can connect projectors because nobody is going to solve it for you. You've got to be able to swap the cables and make things work. And like I said, I feel like our audience is already there. But if you're out there and you've always used that as an excuse, oh, that's not my thing. If you're going to give a presentation, you got to make it your thing. You got to figure it out, you know, have the toolbox in the trunk and be able to troubleshoot or you're going to have a problem. There is, um, uh, there's nothing worse than having, you know, this, this just fall on its face when there's nobody else around, but you have to be able to figure out how to do this yourself. I just, you know, you got to figure it out. Then just the general advice about giving the talk, you know, make sure you breathe, <laughs> take a breath before you get started. There's just focus, center yourself, get started, memorize the intro. Um, don't just look down, you know, make eye contact with the audience. And for the love of Pete, never turn around and look at your slides. Never, ever, ever do that. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the kiss of death. It's telling the audience that you are so irrelevant that even you don't care about yourself. <laughs> you know, um, I did this funny thing in the book about where you put your hands and, uh, but the, uh, you know, think about where you're going to put your hands. Sometimes you're at a lectern and it doesn't matter, but if you're standing in front of people, you know, don't put your hands in your pockets or, you know, don't put them behind your back, you know, make yourself presentable and accessible to your audience. Uh, make sure you, I mean, all of the devices we talked about, iPad, iPhone, and Mac have a way to show you the next slide coming. So try and set it up in a way that you can see the next slide coming. Yeah. What do you use for this? Do you use, um, do you use your Mac? If you're giving a presentation off your Mac, that's the simplest thing to do. Do you, when you're given your iPad though, are you using the phone? What do you do when you give a presentation from iOS? The um on, on iOS, I use the iPad plus a um um a remote uh, name escapes me. Uh, I just we'll come back to that in a minute. But the uh, 
Gosh, how come I can't remember the name? But, you know, I have a Bluetooth remote that works fine with the iPad. The Satichi remote. You have a Satichi. Satichi. For a while, it stopped with iOS 11. Now it works. So it's great. It pairs with Bluetooth. allows you to pause video, advance slides, does all that stuff. So I have the Satichi remote. Um, and I, if I'm presenting with the iPad, I take my stump, you know, my little stump holder with me, and I put it out somewhere in front of me. And when you run the presentation in Keynote, it can show you the next slide. And then I connect it either with lightning directly to the projector or through AirPlay to the Apple TV if they've got that kind of setup. And I can see just fine. I actually bring my big iPad for those. You know, I've got the big one. That's one of the things I use it for. So I've got a bigger view of what's coming up. There's there's no way to do this with dual iPads, is there? I have never tried it, but it may be possible. I don't know. Um, now I think about it, you can use it, an iPhone with an iPad. Um uh, to, to to as the as your remote, but I prefer a physical click on my remote. Uh, I have to. Um, you got me there, Katie. I've never actually tried to give it with two, you know, dual iPads. You know, since you are the dual iPad guy, it's probably not a common thing because most people don't have dual iPads. But you know, handouts is another thing. I I'm not a big. I I treat handouts the same way I do like information on the screen. I. I really, really hate to give out handouts before I give a talk. It, some, I agree. Sometimes you do things where it's required. Some of this, the bar stuff where I do the continuing education stuff for lawyers, they they require it. And it's just the kiss of death of a presentation because you're going to be talking about slide one and they're going to be looking at the handout at slide 16. And there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, so if you have to do handouts, what I usually do is I've even said, oh, you know what? I left them in the car. I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> then I give the presentation and then I go out to the car and I come back and I get them on my back and I give them the handouts so they can have them afterwards. But but try not to give the handouts out early. And, and one last thing about uh, presentation day just just hit me. Um, uh, something I've been doing for several years is I just sit down after an important presentation and I just write out a page of notes on it. Like what went right, what went wrong, you know, what what slides worked, what slides didn't, and and kind of my own self criticism. And you got to do it within a few hours because after that it'll all be gone. But it's a great opportunity to make yourself better at this stuff is to write some notes down. It it really makes a difference, and you can go back and look at it later. I, I, one other thing I don't think we we talked about, but it kind of falls into the realm of of handouts. Is do you ever publish your slides or post them somewhere after the talk? I know SlideShare is a popular site that that I've used before. Um, do you just email the, the slides to somebody if they want it, or email them to the present or to the organization and then let them do with them? Or do you have a specific thing you do with these? I'm I'm generally not in favor of that either because my slides don't make any sense without me there talking. I mean, what's a slide with a big number twenty four on it mean to somebody or a picture of an anvil? So. Uh, if they insist, some, like I said, some of the stuff I do, I'm required to give them the slides afterwards. Uh, we're going to tech show. They want our slides afterwards. And honestly, anybody that looks at those slides and gets anything out of it, it's like, I don't know, it's like speaking in tongues or something. You, you're not going to get anything out of it without me there, which means I think they're good slides because, you know, getting back to the original point, this whole process, this presentation process is about you conveying information to the audience, not them reading your slides. I mean, that's just why handouts like bullets, you know, slides with 10 bullets on them given out as a handout. You, you, if that's your slides, just give them the handout and leave. You don't need to do anything. As much information as they're going to get, they already got. 
Well, you know, as per usual, we we have managed to to tackle this topic in about an hour and a half. So I think the the big thing that we've we've covered now is the, the big takeaways here is is that prepare, prepare, prepare. Yeah, there's no shortcut. You've got to start early. You've got to be thinking about your presentation early. Um, you've got to plan it. You've got to put thought into it, and and then you've really got to plan the execution of it. But this stuff really works. Since I published that book, I've got so many emails from PhDs and just lots of smart people that talk about, you know, putting these techniques into action and getting at work complimented by their supervisors and coworkers about, wow, that that was a great presentation. I mean, this stuff is doable. I mean, if you've listened to this show and uh, you started out the show doing the 10 bullet presentations and 15 points, uh, there's hope for you, you know, just spend a little effort on this stuff and you can make a great presentation. And, you know, there's more of this where this came from. Uh, you know, David has a great field guide. It's a Max Barkey field guide on presentations. It, it's one of your, I think, still your, one of your newer field guides. It's It's got great information and it, it's worth it. Go go grab it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes and uh, I'll pitch it for you because I know it's awkward to pitch your own stuff. Yeah, it's a good book. I'd appreciate that. And um and that's it, man. You can you can do better at this stuff. We all can. All right. Well, we'll have links to everything that we talked about in the show notes, which, again, you can find at relay.fm slash MPU slash 420 for this episode. And you can leave feedback and discuss the issue of presentations a lot further in our Facebook group. Again, link to that uh, also on our website. Um, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm Katie Floyd. He's at MacSparky. And we do want to thank our sponsors for this episode, Smile, Casper, Timing, and 1Password. And uh, hey, we'll hopefully see a lot of you in Chicago later this week. And for the rest of you, we'll talk to you next week.